here's the promise, here's the prophecy, maybe the most famous prophecy of all the Old Testament. This servant of the Lord is going to be righteous himself, and he will identify himself with transgressors, and he will justify them. The righteous servant, well, he's going to make people righteous. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. And I want to back up and hit on a couple kind of Bible words that uh, we just heard right there to help us understand where we're headed today, Jonathan. You said that uh, Jesus, in essence, was righteous. What does that mean? Well, righteous in Bible language, I think, means most fundamentally to be in the right before God. God, as our creator, is also our judge and his standards are absolutely perfect. And naturally, we are actually in the wrong before him because of our attitude of heart toward him and because of our behavior in so many ways. But Jesus, the Son of God, is truly righteous because he has never done wrong or been in the wrong before the Father at all. It's a key Bible word. You're right to highlight it, Steve. It's such an important word. And the other word that jumped out at me there was justify. And so I, I'm guessing you might say that that has some form of a, a legal word right there. So how does Jesus justify us so that we can be viewed as right with God when we have the sin in us? Again, a good question. And the language is related, and it is courtroom language, absolutely. Again, we're thinking about God, our Creator, also being our judge. And for the judge to justify someone means to declare them to be in the right. And as people who are in the wrong because of our sin, because of our wrongdoing, because of our attitude of heart that is rebellious toward God, for us to be declared right, something fundamental needs to happen. And the Bible tells us, this is the core of the gospel message, that Jesus, the righteous one, died for unrighteous people like us that we might be declared right because of his because of his righteousness it's a great exchange and we, we take hold of that by faith well we're going to look at that today in the book of matthew we're in chapter 3 looking at verses 13 to 17 so join us there as we continue the message the god who fulfills all righteousness here is jonathan during the Second World War, a number of European countries took steps to protect their royal families from the risk of abduction or attack. And some, of course, were evacuated to other parts of the world. Members of the Dutch royal family famously sheltered here in Ottawa for much of the war. And our Tulip Festival, if you know the history of that, is a happy reminder of that historical link. But while some royal families in Europe understandably chose evacuation during the war, the British royal family decided that they were going to stay put. And they were going to see out the war among their people and in their own home. There was a sense that they needed to be among their people and with their people so that their leadership would remain credible and so that they could boost morale and show strength. But even while they were doing that during the war and during the horror of the bombing of London and so on, it became clear that the royal family's experience of living through the war was rather different from the experience of many people in London who were living through the war. Many people in the capital suffered tremendous loss as their homes and their businesses were bombed. The royals could go and visit parts of the city, like the poor East End that had been just decimated 
by German bombing. And even though they were present, even though they were there, even though they were sympathetic, there was a sense of distance between them and the suffering people. After all, the royals could go home at night to Buckingham Palace and live in comfort and in relative security. But all that changed on the 13th of September in 1940, when Buckingham Palace sustained a direct hit from a German bomb. Suddenly, the king and the queen knew what it was for their home to be hit and their sense of security to be shattered. The queen, after the incident, spoke now of being able to look the East End in the eye when she visited. And there was a new sense among the people that the royals were not simply over them, but with them. The leaders now really did represent them in a new and a deeper way because they had entered into the same experience with them. There's a great deal going on in this incident at the Jordan River, but one thing that is very clearly happening is that Jesus is purposefully entering into an experience and a situation alongside this crowd. He is identifying with them, and he is doing so in order that he might be their true representative before the Father. We need to remember again where we are in the story. Crowds of sinners have come out from Jerusalem and Judea to the Jordan. They've heard John's message that the Lord is coming, and they need to repent of their sin. And they join him in, in baptism as a sign of their repentance. But now the Lord shows up as promised, and the first thing he does well, is to be baptized by John. And John's bewildered. It doesn't make any sense to him. Verse 13, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John, but John tries to deter him. John's perplexed, but Jesus insists. And John eventually consents. So down Jesus goes into the water of baptism. He joins these crowds of sinners, and he enters the water himself. Why does he do it? Surely Jesus doesn't need to be baptized as a sign of his own repentance. He's the one man who never sinned and never would sin. He is the pleasing son of the Father. But here he is in the water. What's his purpose? And what does it mean? Well, surely this is a giant sign, a giant visual aid of the fact that the son who will please the Father and fulfill the Father's calling for his child, this son isn't brushing his people aside. It's not as though, well, God's people have failed to be faithful, so God is now going to give up on them, push them aside, and try again with a fresh start. No, the son who comes in faithfulness is actually coming to identify himself with his failed people, to come alongside them, to come alongside these sinners who will repent, and then he's going to live out their calling and achieve their salvation for them. Well, that's interesting, and that's very comforting, I think. It's remarkable, really, that Jesus should do this, but why does it matter? It's symbolically rich, but why is it important? Well, that question takes us to verse 15, and it takes us to the heart of the passage. Here, Jesus tells us why he does this and why he identifies with these repentant sinners. Verse 15, Jesus replied to John, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. It's right and fitting for this pleasing son to identify with sinners, says Jesus, to fulfill all righteousness. 
You'll have noticed that the language of fulfillment comes up really quite a lot in this section of Matthew's gospel. Again and again, we're told that in the person and the work of Jesus, the promises of God in the Old Testament are being fulfilled before our very eyes. We saw it a lot, actually, back in chapter 2, if you remember, verse 15. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. Verse 23, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. As Matthew uses this language of fulfillment, he does, he does it to speak of the fulfillment of a promise or an expectation in the Old Testament. And here it seems that he must be referring to the promise that God would call and God would create a truly righteous and holy people, a people who are in right standing with him and who then live rightly in the world. The whole Old Testament sets out the expectation that God's chosen people, his chosen nation, should be righteous and should be holy. We see the theme repeated again and again throughout the Old Testament. Take, for instance, Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 26. The Lord says, You are to be holy because I, the Lord, am holy, and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Be holy because I'm holy. I've set you apart to be holy. The rescued people of Israel were called above all to be a righteous and a holy people. But of course, because they were sinners like you and I are sinners, they failed to be perfectly righteous, and they failed to be perfectly holy. They failed just as we would have failed. They didn't live up to their calling. And so alongside that expectation that God would create a holy people, the Old Testament also sets out the promise that God will make it possible for His sinful people to be made righteous. One of the most famous passages in all the Old Testament is found in the book of Isaiah in chapter 53. It'll be familiar to many of us. Here the Lord speaks of a coming figure, someone referred to as the servant of the Lord, who will represent the nation of Israel, but who will also die as the people's substitute for their sin. Listen to what the prophet says in chapter 53. He says, by his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So here's the promise, here's the prophecy, maybe the most famous prophecy of all the Old Testament. This servant of the Lord is going to be righteous himself, and he will identify himself with transgressors, and he will justify them. The righteous servant, well, he's going to make people righteous. That's the promise of God in Isaiah 53. He's going to be numbered, counted, associated with transgressors in order to do that. And of course, that is exactly what we see the Lord Jesus doing here in Matthew chapter 3. As he enters into the waters of baptism, he identifies with, he associates with the sinners who he came to save. And so says Jesus, it's fitting for me to be baptized, to be numbered among those sinners today, so that I may fulfill the plan of God to make a righteous people for himself. Now, of course, it's important for us to register the fact that in getting into the water that day, Jesus didn't actually make anyone righteous. 
No sin was taken away that day by Jesus simply getting in the water. No one was made right with God. No, the baptism didn't actually effectively save anyone. It was a picture. It was a symbol. It was pointing forward to something yet to come. The actual work of saving sinners, of dealing with their guilt and making them right with God, that was going to happen later, further down the road. The prophecy in Isaiah 53 speaks of the servant pouring out his life unto death and bearing the sin of many. And of course, that's just what Jesus was going to do at the cross. A few short years after this incident in chapter 3, Jesus would go to the Roman cross as the representative and as the substitute of his people. And he would stand in their place and die in their place to deal with the problem of their guilt before a holy God. And through that act, through that saving act, repentant sinners would be made righteous. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. Our message today is called The Son Who Fulfills All Righteousness. It's part of a larger series we're calling Promise Fulfilled, and today taking a look at a few verses in Matthew chapter 3. Now we're going to get back to this message in just a moment, so I do hope you'll stay with us. But if you ever miss a broadcast or you miss part of a program, you can always come to our website and listen online. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. Another way to listen is with the Encounter the Truth app. It's new, and you can find it on your favorite app store. So I do hope you'll go get the app, and then you'll be able to listen to Jonathan's teaching whenever it's convenient for you. Again, it's the Encounter the Truth app at your favorite app store. Let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. It was a remarkable thing that Jesus did that day at the Jordan River. The people of the East End in London were taken aback when they saw the king and queen walking among them, sharing their experience of loss and of hardship. But that was nothing compared to this. It was nothing because the status of Jesus is far above any earthly monarch. He is the divine son, the son of the father. And it's far more remarkable because the cost that Jesus would bear for identifying with these sinful people, well, the cost would be death itself for him. It's a remarkable thing, but it's a wonderful thing too. It's wonderful because you and I are in desperate need of a Savior. Apart from Him, apart from His intervention, our situation would be hopeless and it would be helpless. Those crowds gathering at the Jordan River that day, they were acknowledging their need, but they didn't yet know the solution. They didn't know how their sin was going to be dealt with and how they could be made clean. But what Jesus did that day was to meet them, to meet us at our point of need. He didn't just issue a decree from heaven. He didn't just write a check. He didn't just send one of his agents. No, the Lord of heaven himself came down in the person of his son. He, he rolled up his sleeves and entered into the very depths of our experience, and he identified with us. And then having done that, he died in our place. I have a great admiration for people who work in the emergency services, first responders, firefighters, paramedics, police officers. It's a wonderful thing for someone to be willing to step into a situation of crisis, sometimes a situation of risk and of great danger, to help another person 
who is in desperate need. You may have seen in the news this week the reports of that awful avalanche in Italy that buried a hotel in many of its guests. It's a tragic situation, and when I saw an update yesterday, the search was still ongoing for survivors. It was heartrending to hear, even a couple of days after the avalanche, that survivors trapped under the snow were sending out pleas of help on their phones, begging for a rescue. Now, a rescue in a situation like that often involves risk. The location can be difficult to access, the snow perhaps unstable, the structure unsound. And the only way ultimately for someone to help in that kind of a situation is to enter into the situation of danger personally and physically, to try and access the trapped survivors where they are and to bring help to them. Wonderfully, pictures have been emerging over the last 24 hours of rescuers reaching some of the survivors and then bringing them up to safety. The image at the heart of our passage this morning is the image of a rescuer meeting a needy people right where they are. It's a picture of a rescuer coming and rolling up his sleeves and getting his hands dirty and entering into a messy and a complicated situation. As Jesus enters the waters of baptism alongside all these repentant sinners, he meets them, he meets us where we are in the messiness of our sin and our deep need for cleansing and for forgiveness. Often in our study of the Bible, we're interested to find out how a passage of Scripture applies to us in very practical ways, how it should impact our behavior in the week ahead. We kind of like to go away from a sermon or a Bible study with a a spiritual to-do list for the week ahead. I'm certainly on the lookout for those very practical applications as I prepare for Sunday morning. And it's right that we should be thinking about how God's Word will call us to live and to behave in the week ahead. But at the same time, I'm conscious that it's important for us to remember that the Bible is first and foremost a book about God and not about us first and foremost. And sometimes the reality is that a passage of Scripture isn't really telling me that I should do very much. It doesn't really give me a to-do list, a checklist. Sometimes it's simply showing me in a fresh way who God is and what God has done. And sometimes the application of the passage is simply to rejoice and to praise Him, to thank Him, and to trust Him. And as I've reflected on this little passage, this brief incident this week, I've come to the conclusion that this is just such a passage. Rather than giving me a list of things to do, this passage is simply showing me, showing us in a fresh way who our God is, what He is like, and what He has done for us in the person of His Son. And it's calling us simply to a deeper wonder and a deeper love and it's calling for our highest praise. Many of us can have the impression that God is a little bit distant and a little bit disinterested in the realities of our lives day to day. When trouble comes, God seems far off and He seems difficult to get hold of. We look out at all the trouble and the suffering in the world around us, and it's easy to wonder if God is really engaged in what's going on in His world and His people's trials. It's easy to think that way and to ask those questions, but our passage this morning reminds us that our God is a God who is very engaged in what's going on, who is deeply committed to His people, and who has met us in our deepest need. 
There is, of course, no greater human need than the need of forgiveness. Above all other needs that you and I might have, our greatest need is to have our guilt taken away, our sin paid for, and our standing with God made right. The people gathering at the Jordan River 2,000 years ago that day, well, they knew their need, and they were there because they wanted to address it. John the Baptist had told them the Lord is coming, and they need to repent. They'd been living in rebellion against him, and it would be a fearful thing to meet him if they would not turn from sin. And John the Baptist was absolutely right. The Lord was coming. But here's the shock. Here's the wonder. When the Lord appears, he comes not with words of condemnation or with acts of judgment. But what does he do? What's his first public act? He steps into the water alongside those repentant sinners, and he identifies with them that he might take upon himself all the cost and all the responsibility of rescuing them himself because they cannot do it. The great danger that this people faced was the judgment of God for their sin. John spoke in verse 7 of a coming wrath. He spoke in verse 10 and verse 12 of a fire of judgment. But as Jesus stands in that water alongside these repentant sinners, he points forward to a coming day when he would face the very judgment of God on their behalf and in their place as their substitute and as ours. The passage teaches us here, this picture teaches us that God hasn't left us in our need. He hasn't abandoned us to our fate. He hasn't been far off. He's come down. He's come down in the person of his son. And as if to reinforce the point that God is engaged in our need and in our situation and that God is involved, we're given this wonderful picture of the Trinity in verses 16 and 17. The Spirit comes down like a dove, and then the Father speaks these words of affirmation about the Son. Although God never changes, God is always Trinity, there aren't too many moments in Scripture when we see all three persons of the Trinity referenced and, as it were, visibly acting at the same time. One such moment is actually at the creation. The Spirit of God, if you remember, hovers over the deep. God the Father speaks the worlds into being, and as we're told in the New Testament, the Son is the Word of God by whom these worlds then are made. Creation is a very clear Trinitarian moment in Scripture. J.C. Ryle, the great evangelical leader of the 19th century, wrote about verses 16 and 17 these words. We may regard this as a public announcement that the work of Christ was the result of the eternal counsels of all three persons of the Trinity. It was the whole Trinity which at the creation said, let us make man. It was the whole Trinity again, which at the beginning of the gospel seemed to say, let us save man. Here is God the Trinity acting in concert, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to achieve the salvation of a lost and a needy people, to carry out a rescue for sinners who could not rescue themselves. And seeing this, well, it tells us something about the God we know and the God we trust. It tells us that he's engaged. It tells us that he is concerned. It tells us that he has seen our need and he has heard our cries for help. And he has intervened. 
He stepped into the mess that we've made. And in the person of his son, he has come to rescue us himself because we could not save ourselves. And friends, our only response to such a God and to such a savior is to praise him, to thank him, and to adore him. Jonathan Griffiths, wrapping up our message, The Son Who Fulfills All Righteousness. You're listening to Encounter the Truth, and our message today is part of a larger series called Promise Fulfilled. And if you ever miss part of a broadcast, you can always listen online when you come to EncounterTheTruth.org. And while you're there, I want to ask you to consider giving a financial gift, because that's how we keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. And as you give this month, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called how Church Can Change Your Life. Find out more or give online at EncounterTheTruth.org or call us at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884 or again, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today and I hope you'll join us next time.